0: Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording.
1: Welcome to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting on the Mind of Christ. Unless any of our listeners have been out of the country for a number of months or living under a rock somewhere, you know about the attacks all people of faith, not just Catholic Christians, have faced by the mandate proclaimed by Secretary Subelius of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and wholeheartedly agreed to by President Obama. The liberal secular media insists on referring to this mandate as the birth control whatever. We all know it's really an unveiled attempt to restrict our First Amendment rights. President Obama insists we have freedom of worship, But that's not at all the same as freedom of religion. That's what the Bill of Rights ensures we have. That's what the HHS mandate is attacking. A few weeks ago, as one of the speakers of the Jesus Higher Rally in Toronto, Dr. Ralph Martin spoke about this attack, and many more that we are faced with daily. These are attacks by our contemporary culture and advertising, the liberal media, liberal politicians, and sadly by many who call themselves by Christ's name. Professor Martin's talk title is, We're at War. That's our first talk today. Coming up on June 8th, 2012, there will be another round of Stand Up for Religious Freedom rallies around the country. There were more than 140 rallies across the U.S. last March. We attended and recorded the rally at the Federal Building in Detroit. I went back into the archives for these talks and we will listen to several of them on the second part of our program today. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio.
0: Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording.
1: Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. I've known the first speaker on our program today for more than 40 years. Dr. Ralph Martin earned his STD summa cum laude from the Angelicum in Rome. Professor Martin is the director of the Graduate Theology Program and the New Evangelization at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. In 2011, Benedict XVI appointed him counselor for the Pontifical Council for the New Evangelization, and he is president of the arbor based Renewal Ministries. They are actively working in evangelization and formation in dozens of countries around the globe. Ralph is a prolific teacher, author, and conference speaker. He recently spoke at the annual Lift Jesus Higher Rally in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Here is Dr. Ralph Martin and his talk, We're in a War.
2: How many of you get the Renewal Ministries newsletter? The deadline for the January newsletter was November 15th. So I wrote this on November 15th, and it starts off talking about the American situation, and then it talks about the Canadian situation. This is the opening sentence. The persecution has begun. After years of secularizing influences some of those now in positions of political, intellectual, and legal authority feel strong enough to openly enact punitive measures against the Catholic Church and sometimes Christians in general. In just the last few years, governmental regulations in the United States have been interpreted to mean that unless Catholic institutions agree to arrange the adoption of children by same-sex couples, they will not be able to continue their adoption services and receive federal funding. Catholic adoption agencies in California, Illinois, and Massachusetts have had to discontinue all their adoption services as a result of not being able to in conscience comply. On the national level in the United States, Catholic aid agencies who don't agree to provide abortion referrals have had their grants discontinued. Conscient clauses are being stripped away. The pressure to act against our conscience in these important matters is increasing. Same thing, of course, in Canada. In fact, we used to think that you were ahead of us with the persecution, but we're catching up a little bit recently with the new mandate that every single Catholic institution has to offer insurance that covers abortion, sterilization, and contraception. But one of the encouraging things is that this woke up the sleeping giant in the United States, and the bishops really started to stand up and speak out with courage and with boldness. And... Every single bishop across the United States has said, we will not comply. Cardinal Dolan said, the line has been drawn in the sand, and we will not comply. So, there's a real battle going on in the United States, but it's the same battle that's going on here. I was in Calgary not too long ago, and was talking to Bishop Henry, and he told me how twice he was brought up before the human rights tribunals and accused of hate speech, because he was just teaching Catholic teaching on marriage and family life and sexuality. And the way it was set up, he said, was that the people who make the accusations, all their expenses are paid for by the government, but the people who are accused have to pay all their own defenses. So it was a way of bleeding the Catholic Church. And fortunately, recently, the parliament here has voted to overturn Section 13 of hate speech you know, regulations. But at the same time, the Supreme Court has ruled here in a way that will force parents to expose their children to, quote, diversity training that will undermine their faith in Christ and the church. And so the battle goes on. And the battle isn't primarily, like as Father Jonathan said, a political struggle. It's really a battle that's been going on since one day in the garden, the serpent said, did God really say that? Trying to insinuate doubt and mistrust about the reliability of God's word, about the goodness of God in giving us his word, about the intentions of God towards us in terms of making us happy. And then, of course, the serpent said, you know what? You don't really need that restrictive kind of person who has told you these things. You can be God yourself. The invitation to autonomy, to independence from the creator the foolish invitation to the creature to act like he's God and blinding him to the consequences, which is death. Of course, that was the consequences. That's why we die, by the way. The reason why we die is we believe the lie. We believe the lie from the father of lies, and Jesus identified him in John chapter 8 as not only the father of lies but a murderer from the beginning. The purpose of Satan is to destroy the human race out of hatred towards God and hatred towards us, And the methodology he uses is lies. And then God the Father said, I'm going to place enmity. I'm going to place hostility between the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and the serpent. And the serpent will lash out at the heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the scripture tells us Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus one day said, I see Satan falling like lightning. And there's a restraint now on the work of the evil one, but that underlying spiritual battle, that battle that Father Jonathan was talking about, that war that he was talking about, is going on fiercely. And we should take all the political measures we can and we should take all the legislative measures we can and all the appeals to courts that we can and try to vote the good guys in, the bad guys out you know, as best we can and refuse to comply on something that's really against our belief as Catholics. But when all is said and done, this isn't primarily a political or legal or legislative battle. It's a spiritual battle. Now, how can we really find out what's going on right now under the surface? How can we equip ourselves to interact with it in an effective manner? And how can we protect ourselves from the murderous intentions of these forces trying to destroy the faith and the life of us and our children? That very word of God, that very word that God speaks, that he spoke in the garden for only one purpose, to lead the first human beings to happiness. And that very word now that he speaks to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and as it's transmitted to us in sacred scripture. What did the Apostle Paul say about the word he was preaching that was then written down in the epistles. He said in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, We too give thanks to God unceasingly that in receiving the word of God from hearing us, you receive not a human word, but as it truly is, the word of God, which is now at work in you who believe. The word of God is true. It's not just the human word, but it's God's word, and it has power to bring about transformation in our life and illumine for us what's going on in the world today. Now, one of the biggest victories of Satan in the Catholic Church has been undermining our confidence in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. After Vatican II, Scripture scholarship flourished, but along with it came a current of doubt, of critique, of suspicion, saying, Is this really true? Did this really happen? Didn't Matthew, you know, invent this? Didn't Mark invent that and whatever, you know, and it kind of took away our confidence in the Word of God. And it left us vulnerable to deception. The apostle said, Don't be tossed about about every single opinion that's making its way through the culture, but stay rooted and grounded in the Word of God. But if we've lost our confidence in the Word of God, We're vulnerable to being tossed about by every opinion that comes our way, and that's what's happening to so many of our fellow Catholics. What did Vatican II really tell us about what the Church believes about sacred Scripture? This is what it said in the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. And don't worry, even though I have a doctorate, I'm not getting more complicated, I don't think. If my dad was alive, he'd say, oh, you got a doctorate, that's nice. That and 50 cents will get you on the subway. He's from New York City, and he wasn't impressed by things like that. Honestly, neither am I. Well, this is what Vatican II said. Since, therefore, this is section 11 of the Dogmatic Constitution of Divine Revelation, since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error Teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. The gift of sacred scripture is precious. It transmits to us firmly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred scriptures. This is a precious gift to the church. Let's take a look at a few of the things that sacred scripture tells us about our situation. 1 John chapter 5, verses 8 to 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony that God has borne witness to his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God himself has borne to his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God has not life. And this life is eternal life. Everybody today is getting more and more concerned about health care, right? where we don't want to die, we want the best medical treatment possible, but you know what? We're all going to die. I don't know if your doctors told you this or not, but every single person here is terminally ill. (laughs) Some people know it, some people don't know it, but we're all terminally ill. There's always something in us that's going to kill us. It's just a matter of when. It could be soon, it could be later, but everyone else is going to die. And one of the real questions that God the Father is answering for us is death, the end, the end. Or is it possible to be raised from the dead? Is it possible to have eternal life? Is it possible to have our bodies restored like no doctor could ever restore a body? Is it possible to have eternal happiness? Is it possible to have the fulfillment of all desire? Is it possible that the beauty and the love and the tenderness and the gentleness that we touch here on earth could somehow be infinitely present and infinitely fulfilled? And that's what God's promising us. But the promise has to be received. The gift is in the Son, Those who have the son have eternal life. Those who don't have the son don't have eternal life. And that's why also evangelization is so important. That's why we come to the Lift Jesus Higher rally, not just to build ourselves up in the faith, but to strengthen us in our mission, to strengthen us in our participating with Jesus in seeking and saving those who are lost. I'll say a little more about this later. We don't think that unbelief is a sin. We're not used to thinking about unbelief as a sin. When we think about sins, we think about other things. But here it says, he who does not believe the testimony of God makes God a liar. Father Francis Martin, a well-known biblical scholar, says, the root sin of the world is refusal to believe in Jesus and the place he holds next to the Father as the revelation of the Father. The root sin is to reject the truth. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Father Francis quotes John chapter 3, verse 36. A great Catholic writer once said, It isn't those parts of the Scripture that I don't understand that I'm troubled by. It's those parts of the Scripture that I do understand that I'm troubled by. So much of this is so clear. So much of this you don't even have to look at a footnote to understand. And doesn't that make sense? One day, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He said, Father, I thank you that what is hidden from the learned and the clever, the merest of children are understanding. The essential things about our salvation, the essential things about what's going on in this world, the essential things about how to have eternal life and eternal happiness are available to the merest of children. There's a simplicity to it. And the world in its wisdom tries to obscure that simplicity and cover it over. It makes us think we need to have advanced degrees to understand the scripture so much of it is so clear and so firmly held and so stably held for 2,000 years by the church and taught to us in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, what else does God's word reveal to us that's important for the battle that we're currently in? First John chapter 5, verses 19 and 21. We know that we are of God and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. What the heck? Did you hear that? We know that we are of God, the Christians, the church. But the whole world, the world outside of Christ, the world outside of the church is under the power of the evil one. There's a difference between the church and the world. For the last 40 years, we've tried to pretend that it's all about the same. And we've spent a lot of time becoming a friend with the world. But there's another place in scripture that says he who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now, we've all heard this. There's two senses of the word world. God created the world and he loved it. He said, this is good. This is very good. John chapter 3, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe in him will not perish but will have eternal life. So God loves the world he's created. God loves the human race. God loves every person and every religion and no religion. He lets us rain fall on the just and the unjust, and he calls us to love in the same way. But there's also that sense of the world that's following the father of lies, that wittingly or unwittingly is perpetuating that rebellion against God, that elevation of the creature above the creator, that I will not serve of Lucifer. And that's a whole part of the world, too. There's a difference between those who are of God and those who are not of God. And it makes an eternal difference. It makes a difference on this earth and what we support and what we do and what we're working for. And it makes an eternal difference as well. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Now, not a lot of people these days carve little statues and worship them, although some do. But, you know, one time I was talking about what Scripture said, the words of Jesus, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, my Jesus would never say that. Funny but scary. It's so easy to create an image of God in our own image. It's so easy not to submit ourselves to the revelation that God is making to us and accept it because it's God who's telling us this and pick and choose. Well, this part of what Jesus says, I agree with. And this part of what Jesus says, I don't agree with. This part of what a church teaches, I agree with and this part, I don't agree with. You're making up your own religion. You're creating a God and a church in your own image rather than receiving what's given to us by God. That's rebellion. It may be polite rebellion. It may be cultured rebellion. It may be unwitting rebellion. But it's rebellion. It's idolatry. And if we've fallen into creating Jesus in our own image or religion in our own image, we need to repent. We don't think of repenting of unbelief and repenting of idolatry. But these are very prevalent forces right now in our cultures. 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. This is the other sense of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world. Our disordered desires, our darkened mind, our twisted wills, our Secret decisions that are made in darkness that sometimes we don't even let come into our own consciousness is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then scripture says, and the world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Monsignor Smith mentioned the book, Fulfilling of All Desire, with the wisdom of the saints. And what Teresa of Avila says is that what it means to be holy is to bring our will into harmony with God's will. To love what God loves, to hate what God hates. What does God hate? God hates what messes up his plan for human beings. God hates what defaces the creation. God hates sin because it wounds the soul. And Father Jonathan was talking about the wounds of his own soul that came from his own sins and the sins of others. And we all have wounds of the soul. And part of growing in holiness and growing in love and growing in healing is bringing our will, our mind more and more in harmony with the mind and the will of God. Now, if we don't know that there's a war going on, the same war that's been going on ever since the human race was created, no matter what happens in the parliament and no matter what happens in the courts, the same war is going to continue. If we don't know there's a war going on, we probably are in a prisoner of war camp and have been captured by the enemy in some measure because we're not part Jesus's army. We're not part of the disciples that are waging war. If we're not waging war with Jesus Christ, we've probably been captured or neutralized by the enemy. What kind of war are we talking about? Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses two to six. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly but have divine power to destroy strongholds, suffering united to the suffering of Christ, suffering love, intercession, the witness of our word and the witness of our life. The word of God that we share in conversations or speak in other ways has power to cast down strongholds of Satan that have been erected in people's minds. You know, when we think about delivering people from the power of Satan, sometimes we think of praying for people with exorcisms or deliverance. But a lot of people are held captive by what they have come to believe, strongholds of Satan built in the mind. And Scripture tells us that the doctrines of demons are actually infiltrated into the church through plausible liars. Now, if a demon came to a Lift Jesus High rally and somehow or other had been approved by the committee to give a talk and came up here and the big red tail came out, you'd say, oh, watch out. I'm not going to hear something good here. Or if a smell of sulfur started to come from the stage, you'd say, oh, I think something funny's going on here. But that's not how the doctrines of demons get infiltrated to the church. Demons don't do it directly. They do it, Scripture says, through plausible liars, people with degrees, people who... Or fashionably dressed. I don't meet that criteria. <laughs> I only wear a tie when my wife makes me wear it. But People who wear deodorant. Plausible liars. People with credentials. And so much false teaching and false preaching has happened in the last 40 years that millions and millions of our fellow Catholics are now on a broad way heading towards destruction rather than the narrow way that leads to life. God help us. Ephesians chapter 6. This isn't the end, but it's how this verse starts. (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places, God is revealing to us what's going on. It's not just human beings. It's the powers working through human beings to crush the life of Christ in the church on the earth, to drive us back into the ghetto, to keep us in our church buildings and not allow us to proclaim the name of Jesus publicly like we're still able to do, thanks be to God. Therefore, because of the spiritual war, you've got to kind of protect yourself. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Today's an evil day, but more evil days are coming. And I'll tell you a little bit about the more evil days that are coming and what we can do to prepare. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. How important it is to know the truth of God's word as it comes to us in Scripture The church's tradition and its teaching is embodied in the catechism. Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, holiness. We can't keep straddling sin and Christ. We have to say no to sin and yes to virtue. And there's a wisdom that the saints have for us on that. And having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know what? Flaming darts are being fired at us all the time by the evil one, by thoughts that are coming into our mind, either directly generated from our fallen nature or coming from the culture around us or coming from temptation. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly putting darts into us that are poison darts. And if we don't have the shield of faith to recognize a poison fiery dart when it's coming and don't hold up the shield of faith, Those darts are going to enter into us, and eventually they're going to weaken us and confuse us, and we're going to drift away. How do you wield the shield of faith? Faith has several dimensions. One aspect of faith is knowledge, certain knowledge of how things really are revealed to us by God, and we need to use that certain knowledge as a shield against lies. For example, one lie, you know, the Lord doesn't care too much about these little personal Sins that the church used to so much focus on, he's really mainly concerned about the environment and peace and justice. Well, the Lord is concerned about us caring for the environment and peace and justice, but guess what? He's really concerned about the personal deeds that we do in our life every day. This is one of the major deceptions that's in the atmosphere of our culture right now. First Corinthians chapter six verses nine and eleven. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Right from the beginning, right from the early days of the church, right during the ministry of Jesus, there were those who were contradicting him, those who were opposing him. One of the big frustrations of Paul is that people followed him around, undermining his teaching. But the teaching of Christ authenticates itself by the power of the Holy Spirit And when you know the word of God has been spoken to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you better darn well hold on to it and not let anybody shake you from that truth. Amen. (laughs) Paul says, if an angel came to you and told you a different gospel, don't believe them. We need to have that kind of knowledge of and that kind of confidence in the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. One of the huge deceptions working on people is that it's no big deal. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. Everybody's going to be saved. Everybody does it. It's okay. It's a huge lie. And Paul's trying to warn us, don't fall for it. Because neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. You don't need to even look at a footnote for that. People who persist in serious sin, sin of unbelief, sin of idolatry, sin of sexual immorality, will not enter the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God is set free. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll really be free. Freedom from bondage, freedom from slavery is only available through relationship with Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the good news we have to bring people who are slaves to sin. That's the good news we need to preach to ourselves when we're tempted. That's the good news we need to preach to ourselves when the lies come our way and say, this doesn't really matter, but it does. It does. If we die in serious sin, if we die in unbelief, we will not enter the kingdom of God. Listen to how Paul described his mission. He's giving his testimony like Father Jonathan gave this morning. He's giving it before King Agrippa, who's married to Bernice, who happens to be his sister. And the governor Festus has invited Paul to explain to King Agrippa and Bernice what happened to him. And when we had all fallen to the ground, Paul said, I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, sir? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The beauty of Jesus is identifying himself with his brothers and sisters in the Lord. The beauty of Jesus calling us his friends The beauty of when we are persecuted, Jesus saying, you're persecuting me. The beauty of that union with Jesus between Christ and the church. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. The Lord allowed Father Jonathan to go through his suffering so he can now be a witness and testify to God caring for us even in the midst of grave evil, bringing good out even in the midst of grave evil. God only permits those things to occur in our life that he has a plan for bringing even greater good out of, even though we don't understand at the moment. And I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The mission of evangelization is helping people come out from under the domination of the world, the flesh, and the devil and come into the place of freedom in Jesus Christ and the life of the church. That's what evangelization is all about. Jesus and the church are the place of freedom and deliverance and eternal life. The world, the flesh, and the devil is literally the way to hell. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I picked out one main lie that little personal sins that aren't little personal sins don't matter, they do, don't be deceived. Another lie I pointed out was casting doubt on the reliability of sacred scripture. Another lie is this. If I were to describe how Many of our fellow Catholics look at the world today and describe it like this. Broad and wide is the way that leads to salvation, and almost everybody's traveling that way. But narrow is the door, and difficult the road that leads to hell, and hardly anybody's going that way. I know you're a long way from the Bible belt, but what's wrong with this picture? It's the opposite. How did we ever get to accepting as the gospel truth something that's just the opposite of what God's word says to us? How did we ever get there? Little by little, by losing our confidence in Scripture, by listening to plausible liars, by imbibing the culture that wants to avoid accountability and responsibility for our actions, by listening to the voices say, all roads lead to heaven, all religions are fine. By listening to all that. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? Broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many are traveling that way but narrow is the door that leads to life a difficult the road and few there are who are finding it jesus said that not because this is how he wants it to be not because this is how it has to be but this is how it often is maybe in a time when christian culture was prominent in our countries the broadway was a little more leading towards heaven but now 1700 years of christian culture is collapsing is being stripped away is being hostily destroyed And we're again becoming a minority surrounded by an aggressive pagan culture. These words of Jesus seem very applicable today. We're foolish to think that if we drift along with the culture, we're going to end up in a good place either on this earth or after our deaths. The wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of man. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the unspiritual person. But for those of us who believe it's the power of God for salvation... Finally, evil days and more evil days and why we don't have to be afraid of evil days, but we need to be prepared for them. And this is the final scripture. Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verses three to twelve. I won't read it all. Let no one seduce you, no matter how. There's continual warnings against being seduced, about being led away, about being deceived right in the early church. The battle we're fighting today is the same battle that's been going on forever. It's a battle between darkness and light. It's a battle between truth and falsehood. It's a battle between Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and the powers and the principalities that would seek to destroy him and destroy the church. St. Augustine said if the demons had their way, they'd kill all of us. So murderous is their hatred for the human race. God, of course, restrains them. We're still here. And then Paul says, look, before the Lord returns, certain things have to happen. So before the Lord returns, there's going to be something called a mass apostasy. What's an apostasy? It's the turning away from faith on the part of those who once had it. In our lifetime, we're seeing a mass apostasy in the traditionally Christian Western nations. Whether it's the mass apostasy that happens just before the Lord returns or not, honestly, we don't know. We'll have to see. A lot of these prophecies, both about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming, you only fully get after the event happens and say, oh, that's what those things were pointing to. But they alert us. The second thing that needs to happen is the appearance of unrestrained lawlessness. And it says, at a certain point, that restrainer on lawlessness shall be taken from the scene, and then the lawless one will appear as part of the working of Satan, accompanied by all the power and signs and wonders at the disposal of falsehood. Again... When you strip away the influence of Christ in the church and society, you're stripping away restraints on evil. And now we're seeing unrestrained, blasphemous actions against God, unrestrained, shameless boasting of gross sexual immorality, promulgation of a vision of human life that's so distorted and so twisted from God's purpose. We're seeing more and more unrestrained lawlessness in the killing of babies on amazing scale. The powers and principalities hate human life and they're infiltrating their lies and their powers into the very fabric of our societies and our nations and we need to resist. But what then happens at that point, every seduction the wicked can devise will unfold for those destined to ruin. Wait a second. Who's destined to ruin? I mean, we know the church has. Rejected as a heresy, the theory of double predestination, which says that God has created some human beings for damnation and has created other human beings for salvation. The Catholic Church says, no, that's not what God's word says. God wants the whole human race to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He sent his son for everyone. But God's mercy is so great, but we can't presume that God's mercy will force human freedom. There needs to be a response to mercy. Mercy. Even St. Faustina, who was sent by the Lord with a message of the incomprehensible mercy of God, was given a vision of hell where she saw vast numbers of people there, many of whom were there because they didn't believe that hell existed. God will do everything He can while there's still hope, while there's still life, to bring people to salvation. All we have to do is say yes to the sacrifice of Christ. Yes, the faith in his sacrifice for us, confess our sins, repent, and we'll be saved, even if this is the last minute of our life. But there has to be that, yes, there has to be that acceptance that we're in need of salvation and only God can save us and we want him to save us. So don't ever give up on praying or hoping for anybody. Where there's life, there's hope. But something's really at stake. Here it goes. By every seduction, the wicked can devise for those destined to ruin because... They have not opened their hearts to the truth in order to be saved. Therefore, God is sending upon them a perverse spirit which leads them to give credence to falsehood so that all who have not believed the truth but have delighted in evil doing will be condemned. It's almost like Satan's going to be allowed to harvest those who have rejected mercy and have chosen Satan. Those who have closed their hearts to the truth and have chosen to believe a lie rather than the truth, have fallen into the grave sin and have persisted in it of unbelief and immorality, is it like Satan's going to be allowed to collect the harvest that is chosen for him? How important it is for our own life that we know we're in a spiritual war. How important it is that we know the word of God, that we believe the word of God. And if you've got a doubt about what it means, look it up in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's clearer and more understandable on the most important things that anybody can imagine. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a doctorate in theology to know what we have to know about the war we're in and what we have to do to be saved. The shield of faith. We need that shield of faith. We need to know there's fiery darts being fired by the enemy. We need to turn them back by saying, that's not true. That's wicked. I don't want it. Another scripture says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. If you don't know there's a devil and you're not able to discern when you're being tempted, you're not going to resist. You're going to say, oh, that's a nice idea. Oh, that's an interesting thought. That's a novel approach to things. Oh, that seems to be what most people believe these days. You need to resist the devil. We're in a war. Like Father Jonathan said, act. If we care about our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers, our relatives, our friends and neighbors, we're not just going to be praying for them to get good health care and good jobs. We're going to pray for them to get eternal life and to find themselves in the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, you've been listening to a talk by Dr. Ralph Martin from the recent Lift Jesus Higher Rally in Toronto. His title was, We're in a War. We'll continue on that theme right after the break with several of the short talks from the March Detroit Stand Up for Religious Freedom Rally. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple
0: of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording.
1: Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. Back on Friday, March 23rd, in 140 cities across the country, stand-up for religious freedom rallies were held at noon local time. I attended and recorded the one at the Federal Building in Detroit. It was coordinated by Dr. Monica Miller. There were a number of speakers, each was allotted five minutes. Some stuck to the schedule, some didn't. One that didn't was my friend Father Joseph Marquis. He's the pastor of Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Church in Livonia, Michigan.
3: I'm Father Joseph Marquis from Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Church in Livonia, Michigan. in the book of the prophet Isaiah Thus says the Lord who created you Jacob and formed you Israel Do not fear for I have redeemed you I have called you by name You are mine Fear not for I am with you All who call who are called by my name i have created for my glory i have formed them and made them all who are called by my name i have created for my glory your very existence glorifies god it was saint thomas more the man for all seasons who was martyred for the defense of an unjust state-sanctioned mandate which violated his free exercise of religious liberty and the freedom of conscience who commented god made the angels to show him splendor as he made animals for innocence and plants for their simplicity but man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind For all who are called by my name, saith the Lord, I have created for my glory, I have formed them, and I have made them. Pope Benedict XVI commented, "...conscience is the keystone on which to base a culture and build up with the common good. It is by forming consciences that the Church makes her most specific and valuable contribution to society." Two hundred and thirty-seven years ago today, March the 23rd, 1775, in a speech delivered by uh, the great founder, or founding father of our country, Patrick Henry, in the St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, said, Give me liberty or give me death. Do we share those sentiments? Give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty, or give me death. Henry's words, an example of life, serve to remind us that the liberties we now all too often have taken for granted, such as the freedom of religion, and the liberty to be freely exercising our consciences, was so dear to all of our founding fathers, the founders of this great nation, that they would willingly face death itself, rather than be deprived of those freedoms. In point of fact, Patrick Henry's words, Give me liberty or give me death, uttered 237 years ago this day, were inspired and a response to the promptings of his own divinely conferred conscience. It was yet another founding father, Thomas Jefferson, who underscored why the exercise of conscience is necessary for a free society when he uttered these words. All tyranny needs to gain a foothold. Foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. To paraphrase Jefferson's sentiments, if we do not defend basic conscience rights, if we do not act upon our consciences, tyranny has already taken a foothold. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great a Nobel Prize winning author of the 20th century who wrote Gulag Archipelago knows what it's like when conscience rights and religious liberties are taken away. He said justice is conscience, not a personal conscience, but the conscience of the whole of humanity. Those who clearly recognize the voice of their own conscience usually recognize also the voice of justice. In his... Address to the Templeton, during the Templeton lecture in London in 1983. This is what the author of the Gulag Archipelago wrote in a speech he called Godlessness, the first step to the Gulag. Quote, the West has yet to experience a communist invasion. Religion here remains free, but The West's own historical evolution has been such that today it too is experiencing a drying up of religious consciousness. This gradual sapping of strength from within is a threat to faith that is perhaps even more dangerous than any attempt to assault religion violently from without, unquote. Solzhenitsyn's sober, sober warning that the gradual drying up of religious consciousness in the West would lead to a gradual sapping of religious strength from within, has now proven all too prophetic in light of the HHS mandate that directly threatens both conscience rights and our deeply held religious liberties given to us by God. We gather here today not because there has been an attempt to violently take away our religious rights from without, The invasion is coming, if you will, from within. Recently, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, disclosed that the previously unheard warnings of Solzhenitsyn are manifesting themselves at this moment. Quote, Cardinal Dolan stated, We know very well that religious freedom is our heritage. Our firm belief both as loyal Catholics and Americans. There have been many threats to religious freedom over the decades and years, but these have often come from without. This one HHS mandate comes from within. So do we heed the warnings of the prophets of our age, of an Alexander Solzhenitsyn who once commented, Those who clearly recognize the voice of their own conscience usually recognize also the voice of justice. Those who clearly recognize the voice of their own conscience usually also recognize the voice of justice. And this has been granted to us by Almighty God. God gave it. We've got it. They can't have it.
1: (laughs) Following Father Father Marquis is another old friend. Pastor LeVon Yule is extremely active in pro-life work, both on the local and national levels. Listen especially to his point where Thomas Jefferson's line about church and state separation really comes from. It's not from the Constitution, as many separations incorrectly teach. It's from a letter to a Baptist congregation. Here is Pastor Levon Ewell.
4: Good afternoon. My name is Pastor LaVon Ewell. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Pastor of the Bible Church and host of Joshua's Trail. You hear? <laughs> the word of the Lord from the book of Acts, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 21. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, and they found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the door. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the man whom ye have put in prison uh, standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and uh, brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have them stoned. And they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intent to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God. God rather than man. Then the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye have slew, and hung on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God have given to them that obey. And every heart said, Amen. Amen. There is an often used phrase in America, and we've heard it repeatedly in the last few decades, if not long, and it most certainly has been abused. But I think the day that we can put this particular phrase in its right historical context. And I'm just going to share a few words from one of the history books that I love that I think will show you that today this phrase is more than appropriate. In a book entitled America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations, Bill Ferrier gives this report in reference to a letter that Thomas Jefferson had written and an occasion that caused him to respond to some of the concerns of some of his constituency. On January 1st, I quote, on January 1st, 1802, Jefferson wrote a letter to the Dansbury Baptist Association of Dansbury, Connecticut, claiming their fears that Congress was not in the process of choosing any one single Christian denomination to be the state denomination, as was the case with the church in England and in Virginia. After reading their letter, this letter from the Dansbury Baptist Church, these folk had great concern that the government was about to dictate to them what they could do in the church. Thomas Jefferson, in his response to the church, made it plain in his personal response that in the affairs of church and the government, the government has no right to interfere with the religious exercise and expression of the Christian church. And there is where he made Now, the misplaced phrase, That even some historians, they say it's in the Declaration of Independence. They say that it's in the Constitution. It is in neither. It is in this letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in response to the Dansbury Church. It is on this occasion where he said there is a separation of church and state. There is a wall that should not be breached by the government. Not by the church, but by the government. There is a place that the government should never come. Finally, let us have separation of church and state.
0: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I so appreciate you coming out today. This may well be a turning point in our nation's history. What's happening is unprecedented. Never before in American history has the federal government ever commanded, coerced, forced a religious institution to engage in activities that that religious institution has historically taught to be evil. We tolerate a lot of evil in America. But rarely do we command directly be performed. And that's what we've got going on now with the federal government. So, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. In vain do you stay up late. In vain do you rise up early. Unless the Lord builds the house, in vain do those labor. Now, we have to keep in mind through all of this, that's Psalm 127. And one of the things that we learn in Psalm 127, that the basic principle is you have to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. We want this to be an enduring victory for American religious liberty. The only way this happens is if we actually take it into ourselves and make this our personal, our personal engagement. Psalm 51 is beautiful here, and this is the mechanism. This is the identifier. This is the way that we ensure that this doesn't just become, a, you know, a political tempest and a teapot. Psalm 51, you all know it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What we've got in this situation is not merely a political matter. There's a very funny passage in Psalm 127 that I referred to uh, earlier, which is this, that even as we sleep, the Lord provides for us. I get a kick out of that because, really, we have been asleep. And yet, the inner workings of providence continue in spite of our sleep over the last generation. We've been woken up. And so, we turn to the Lord at a time like this, and we say, Create in me a clean heart, O God. We make it personal. Our enemy is, first of all, our own heart. The line that runs between good and evil runs right down our own human spirit. And so we've got the opportunity now. We've been awoken by the Lord. We have a tremendous opportunity by our own prayer, our own penitence, our own confession to so identify with Christ in this situation that even as we sleep, The inner workings of providence continue. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 7, there's a fascinating passage. I'm not going to comment much on it. I just want to read it to you. I think you'll clearly uh, draw the parallels. Remember now, the Lord is at work even as we sleep. So our own failed efforts in the past, we shouldn't despair over them because we can turn to him and say, created me a clean heart, O God. Fulfill that which is lacking in our earlier work and efforts. And... In 1 Samuel chapter 7, let me read it to you. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bowels and their ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mitzvah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mitzvah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mitzvah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord, our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took up a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The turning point was their enactment of Psalm 51. They called out unto the Lord, they made sacrifice, they looked to purify themselves before God, and God gave them the victory. I would urge us, we may have been asleep over the last generation, but in the inner workings of providence, God has prepared us right now to see to it that America takes a new course and a new birth of liberty, a new birth of freedom. Thank you.
5: Good afternoon. My name is Richard Thompson. I'm the president and chief counsel of the Thomas More Law Center, a national public interest law firm that defends the religious liberty of Christians, time-honored family values, and the sanctity of human life. Our namesake, Thomas More, as he refused to compromise his conscience, went up to the scaffolding and said, I die the king's good servant but God's first. And that's what our cry should be today. Clark Durant mentioned some words from the Declaration of Independence, which is our birth certificate, and he said our liberties are unalienable rights that have been granted to us by God. That he meant the Creator, it was God. It was a Judeo-Christian God. It was a God that created us in His image these were a gift from God, they were not a gift from the government. And Thomas Jefferson said, can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people, that these liberties are the gift of God. It was the gift of God, and thereafter, men constituted governments, not the other way around. I'm going to give you a little history. You know, we almost didn't get our Constitution. Even after the Founding Fathers left Philadelphia and went to the people and said, we want you to ratify it, the people said, you don't have any Bill of Rights. How are we going to protect ourselves from ambitious politicians who take the Constitution and turn it on its head? Pull them out! Yeah. Although Thomas Jefferson didn't attend that Constitutional Convention, he sent a letter to Madison, he called the omission of a Bill of Rights a major mistake. He said, a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth. End quote. Its value, in Madison's view, was in part educational, in part as a vehicle that might be used to rally people against a future oppressive government. How right he was. Yeah! Now. So the Bill of Rights were ratified in 1791 after the Constitution was ratified. And the provision of the Bill of Rights that gives us that right of conscience is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, and then the crucial phrase, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Thomas Jefferson stated in 1809, quote, No provision in our Constitution ought to be dearer to man than that which protects the rights of conscience against the enterprises of the civil authority. End quote. That's why it's a First Amendment issue that we have today. Now I want to tell you what the Catholic bishops said over a 100 years ago. This was the Catholic bishops saying about America's founding at their Third Plenary Council in 1893. Quote, we consider the establishment of our nation's independence, the shaping of its liberties and laws as a work of special providence. And if ever the glorious fabric is subverted or impaired, it will be by men forgetful of the sacrifices of the heroes that reared it, the virtues that cemented it, and the principles on which it rests. End quote. This was over a hundred years ago, and I can tell you, we are gathered here today to proclaim that we have not forgotten the sacrifices of the men from Valley Forge to Lexington Green to World War One, to World War Two, to the Korean War to the Vietnam War to Iraq and Afghanistan. Men bleeding and sacrificing their lives so that we could enjoy the First Amendment rights that we have in the United States. Now. Now, the Department of Health and Human Services mandates that employers pay for health insurance for their employees that cover sterilization, contraceptions, and the morning-after pills that may cause abortions. Now, they provided a narrow exception for a religious institution that basically meant if you worked within the four walls of a church, you were exempt. But every other religiously associated institution, whether they be Catholic hospitals, universities, schools, and other charitable institutions, were not covered by that exemption. So accordingly, we are here today to demand that the federal government rescind the HHS mandate because it substantially interferes with the First Amendment to the United States Constitution that limits the activity of government from substantially interfering with our First Amendment rights. There is another statute. It's a statute. It is not an amendment to the Constitution, but that's the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is also applicable. That was enacted by Congress, unanimously by the House of Representatives, and almost unanimously by the Senate, It was signed into law by President Clinton. And that law says government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability unless it demonstrates that the application of the burden to the person is one, in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling government interest. That's the second law that is applicable to what is going on today in the United States in their preamble to that bill the congress said quote the framers of the constitution recognizing free exercise of religion as an unalienable right secured its protection in the first amendment to the constitution and then it went on to say that this 1993 law purpose was quote to provide a claim or defense to persons whose religious exercise is substantially burdened by the government and so This mandate, the HHS mandate, forces people of religion sincerely held religious beliefs that oppose contraception or abortifacients or sterilization to make a choice. They can violate their religious beliefs and pay for the coverage. They can maintain their religious beliefs and pay $2,000 per employee, in some cases, in some employment, running into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or thirdly, they can go out of business. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a substantial burden. Now, I want to tell you all here, it doesn't matter what you claim to believe if you're unwilling to act on your belief. And that's important. And by your appearance here today, You are showing, you're manifesting your willingness to act on your beliefs. This is a sad irony that I want to mention, you know. Thousands of American soldiers are shedding their blood, sacrificing their lives to establish a constitution republic in Afghanistan and Iraq when here our own government is tearing up our constitution. Most of those soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq are Christian. Many of them are Catholic. Washington doesn't realize that Christians were born for combat. They have underestimated Christians. Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. When Christ saw the money changers in the temple, he did not keep quiet he did not turn away in the presence of wrong to keep the peace he broke the peace by driving them out he armed himself with a scourge of cords and drove them out so peace is not our goal righteousness is our goal if you want peace all you have to do is keep quiet all you have to do is leave this square But C.S. Lewis, that great author and scholar, warned, there comes a time when Christians must show they disagree. There comes a time when Christians must show their Christian colors. We cannot remain silent or concede everything away. We need to obey God, even if that brings us in conflict with civil authority. If civil laws clearly conflict with divine law, it is our duty to resist. And as Dante said, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in time of great moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. Thank you.
1: To close this program as he did the rally, we'll hear from a former neighbor of mine, Detroit Auxiliary Bishop Michael Burns, although he wasn't a priest yet when he was my neighbor. He's introduced by conference coordinator Dr. Monica Miller.
3: Our last and final presenter today is the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Detroit. I am so encouraged and edified and happy and joyful and all those other words to present to you now, Bishop Michael Burns.
6: Thank you, Dr. Miller. And thank you all, brothers and sisters, for being here. God bless you. I see a sign that says we stand with the bishops. Well, we stand with you. From Matthew's Gospel When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Yeah. And not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Jesus makes it plain here that the religious practice of his followers is not restricted to Sunday worship alone but that it extends Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. it extends to the care of the stranger, the poor, the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned. He makes it further clear by his example, the many healings of non-Jews, and the feeding of the 4,000 in the region beyond the Jordan, and by his teaching, the story of the Good Samaritan, that such care should reach beyond religious boundaries, In doing so, he follows clearly the Hebrew scriptures, as we read in Leviticus 19.34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in Egypt. Our charity knows no bounds. We are not to be restricted. In fact, our eternal destiny depends on whether we extend care to those who are in need. When the sick arrive at a Catholic hospital, they're not required to show their baptismal certificates. We do not require children to be Catholic when they enroll in our schools. The Franciscan brothers and the many, many others that serve the homeless here on these very streets do not ask them what parish they belong to. When I used to lead Bible studies in jails and in prisons, I did not invite Catholics only. We do not serve the people that we serve because they are Catholic, but because we are Catholic. And we do this in direct obedience To the founder, not only of our country, but the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ. It's a matter of obedience. The administration's actions represent a misguided attempt to tell us who we are and what we are allowed to do. They are trying to define us, but we have one who has defined us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded both to love and serve the Lord and to love our neighbor. Laws that protect our, free, our freedom to comply with just one of these commands, but not the other, are nothing to celebrate. They are foreign both to our religious and our national history. In the end, if we allow this debasement to stand, we will not only have turned our backs on our constitutional heritage, we will have turned away from the Lord. We stand here today to announce to our nation and to be all people of goodwill that we will be relentless in our efforts to protect the free exercise of our religious faith. We love our country and we pray for its prosperity. But above all, at the end of our lives, we long to hear the words, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, You did it to me. Welcome into the joy of your master.
1: On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard a conference talk by Dr. Ralph Martin entitled We're in a War. It was from the 2012 Lift Jesus Higher Rally in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We also heard three talks from the first Detroit Stand Up for Religious Freedom Rally last March 23rd. There will be another set of rallies across the country on Friday, March 8th. For the location nearest to you or to volunteer, on the internet, go to standupforreligiousfreedom.com standupforreligiousfreedom.com Our talks for Putting on the Mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 433. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506, 734-930-4506, or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is necessarily supported. If you like what is offered here, We ask that you support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Groot. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.